this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. My great pleasure, it's been a while, have my good friend Marjorie Dannenfelser back on Church and Culture. Just about two weeks ago, the Los Angeles Times ran the following headline about Marjorie. The woman who brought down Roe v. Wade wants to take the abortion battle to California. I know that just embarrassed her, but let me go on with my introduction. She is the president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. They have raised, and also through their PAC, more than $61 million in the 2000 election cycle and contacted more than 8 million pro-life voters. These efforts elected the largest incoming class of pro-life congresswomen in history, 19, bringing the total to 30 serving in the House, more than double the previous record. Her first book, I'm sure there are more to come, is entitled Life is Winning Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. She's published in Everywhere That Counts, magazine-wise, newspaper-wise. In 2020, she was named once again after 2016 the National Co-Chair of the Pro-Life Voices for Trump coalition. She's been named by Politico, one of the top 50 influences, and Newsmax says one of the top 25 most influential Republican women, and so forth. She went to Duke University, my mother's alma mater, and she and her husband Marty live in Northern Virginia and have five children. Marjorie, welcome back. It's been far too long. Way too long. It's great to hear your voice, Steele. Now, what did you think of that ha- headline when you saw it? <laughs> um, well, two things, actually. They, they stole that from New York Magazine. That, um, and I thought, okay, number one, this is God's victory. There is no way, humanly possible, that any of us could have devised a plan so simple but so difficult um, without him. It just is, we are so super smart, we think. <laughs> Um, but there were just impossibilities every single step along the way that had his hand in the middle of it. And so my first reaction is, oh, gosh, not me. <laughs> but I'm privileged to have been at the center of a lot of this, along with so many other people, including you, Deal. Before I, I knew you before you knew me because I read you. And you're one of the people that helped convince me to come over to the, to the side of light. I don't just mean Catholic, I mean pro-life. So, I mean, we all stand on the shoulders of... Of giants, and uh, but the other thing I thought about that California one was, wow! I definitely talked to that reporter, and it was really a lot of fun. But I, I never did say that. Of course <laughs> right not. Now, we can talk of course about not. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, uh, I do hope Saint Peter remembers what you just said when I uh, face him. But <laughs> no, I, uh, I do think, but I never and I, I've, I've told you this for a number of years now, Marjorie. There is one way in which you and your organization have been distinctive in the pro-life cause. I mean, and distinctive isn't strong enough. I mean, unique. You guys, under your leadership, figured out how to do grassroots electoral politics. And you did it, and you did it very successfully. In other words, under you, SBA, became a an organization to be feared by uh, congressmen and women, candidates, because you had the grassroots power and connection to make people win or lose. And no one else in the pro-life movement has done that. 
Well, it, you know, it is it is another miracle because we started in my house with about five thousand dollars, <laughs> and <laughs> no uh, one should ever. I started with less than that at crisis, but go ahead. Exactly. No. So you know, you know that you you what you do is you find the best talent you can. You make the best strategic decision that you can make, given the amount of resources that you have, and then you just you just try to build. But that's why I just always go to God's grace because it fanned the flames when when uh, and when impossible was the word out of everybody's mouth. And I think you and I are both motivated by that word when it comes from other people to us. <laughs> um, it's uh, you know you want to be a sign of contradiction in the world um, if there is a pathway to do so. But I. Just, just want to comment on what you said too about the about uh, pro life being the potential political powerhouse that, that it now now is that really wasn't before. And I and I just remember thinking as a convert to the cause, thinking, okay, I'm from Eastern North Carolina, where tobacco is king, and their lobby is king. It was back then. The dairy farmers they get everything they want. Unions get everything they want. NRA was at its height. They got everything they want. Why not the baby? I mean, this is eminently more powerful than all of those causes. And where is our political arm? It was placid. It was, we would say things and we didn't have an ability to follow up on elections and unelect people who said that they were pro-life and then they acted otherwise. And just the fact of being able to do that and then build on that was an example to others that if you say you're pro-life, then you better act like that. You better even lead like that, not just vote like that when it becomes important. And if you can't do it, then you should really be looking at jobs in the private sector because that's where, because uh, because the political world is, is the world when it comes to life, it's a world where statesmen should be made um, because of the enormity of the moral project that it is and the difficult, heavy political lift that it also is. Marjorie, I think it would be helpful to our listeners to for you to give a concrete example of a confrontation you've had with a member of Congress who promised to be pro-life but wasn't. Uh, I know that you and I have had long, some long conversations about some of these encounters, and if you can, please name a name. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, there are quite a number. <laughs> but I'll I'll pick the one that actually I was very close to because I worked for him. He was a pro life Democrat from West Virginia, who I I still truly love. I haven't seen him since he's been out of office, but he taught me a lot. And one of the things he taught me is in politics, you got if you're going to shoot a bear, you have to kill it. <laughs> you can't injure it. It'll be back to <laughs> it'll be back to right. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli is like out the window waving at me. Sorry, this is, he made a break in this. Um, so, so if you if you learn that lesson and you're actually able to to do it, you aim aim well, shoot straight, and um, and then you'll make an uh, you'll you'll make an example of the of others. It sounds ruthless, but that is actually how it works. And it was a man that I worked for, Alan Mollahan in West Virginia, who was that that guy. It was him and all of the pro-life Democrats who voted against the Bart Stupak bill at the center of the health care debate during Obamacare. They they absolutely expressed fealty to it. They could not possibly vote for health care without that important um, amendment, which would have prevented taxpayer funds to support abortion in health care. And then every single one of those guys and women fell to uh, to a to a silly kind of fig leaf that Obama gave them, except for one person, Dan Lipinski, who held held strong. Um, By the way, you stuck it to Stupak after he changed his mind, right? Yeah, when he changed, yes, that's, that's true. I almost forgot about that. So <laughs> after they, so we were going to give him this big award. I had been in his office thanking him from the heart of the pro-life movement that there is such an important place for pro-life Democrats which there still is, by the way, and that how he is a beacon to all that you can, you know, have a conscience and allow your conscience and you can go against the, you know, go against the man when you have to. And then he totally caved. We had been planning on giving him a big award. He was the centerpiece of our, our big gala. Uh, we said, no, don't show up for the award because you won't be, 
receiving it, and I end up I, I think I gave it to our executive director who had who had really I remember that gal. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that is a painful thing. I never took delight or happiness in all those men and women going south on the most fundamental human rights battle of our time. But you had, but we had to, and there were a lot of people who were saying. No, they're our friends, you know, like they didn't really mean it or, no, they meant it. They did it. They, they completely, um, turned and became, uh, hypocrites when we didn't see it. We, I didn't see it coming, I have to admit. I thought they were going to hold strong. We helped unelect, um, 18 out of 22 of those targets that year. And that was a, that was a year when everything changed for us. Right. Now, I want to repeat that. So what you're saying is after all these, members of Congress promised to oppose Obamacare with its federally funded abortion. You you and your organization helped to defeat 18 of how many of those? Of 22 of the targets. 18. What, how did the other four get away, Marjorie? I <laughs> know, really. Well, a couple of them, Mary Rosa Carl, I'll never forget her. She's so entrenched in her district, we we couldn't, couldn't oust her. But, um, but yeah, I, I remember sitting on the steps of the Rayburn House office building and, um, um, Mallory Quigley, uh, our, our comms communications person, help, um, was, was put up to the television, the press conference that, um, that the Democrats had put together with Obama to say that he was going to do a, he was going to pass an executive order, sign an executive order, take care of the problem, complete lie. Um, and I could not believe it. I'm listening to these words coming from Bart Stupak, who had made these promises. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I, the next call, which I got a call from Wall Street Journal, and, and I'm like, just note what just happened. Note just what just happened. Not one of those pro-life Democrats so-called are safe. And almost, you know, it's like a Babe Ruth moment. You point <laughs> and you, like, pray that it works. Because if it hadn't, it would have been a miserable failure for the pro-life movement. But it did. And um and they and every everyone can see the record. Everyone was on record. Believe it. Um, if you say it, believe it. Act that way, or you're gonna, or it's gonna be painful. And of course, that, like you say, was the turning point, culminating in the achievement I mentioned earlier of the 2020 election. Now, I get, I take it, uh, SBA Pro Life America is already hard at work for the upcoming midterm election. Indeed, we are. Because the overturn of Roe v. Wade, this, and I'm still saying it out loud, pinching myself, but the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which is now leading to every day another state passing a pro-life protection, um, and all, at the same time things to serve, uh, you know, programs to serve women. But every day babies are being saved now. Every day... All this work is culminating deal in souls that are allowed to make their way into the world, new family trees being formed, new family reunions in the future that will look very different from what they were, women who get what they need instead of some some so-called panacea that uh, the abortion would somehow fix their problem. This is happening every day. But what could happen is that the House and the Senate um, would conspire, which they're trying to do, to pass a bill um, called the Women's Health Protection Act, and they're going to vote on it again soon. They've already tried one time, um, and they're, they, if they, uh, and their goal, of course, is to get that bill signed by the president, and it would wipe out our ability completely to do anything. It would be like Roe versus Wade in legislation, but worse because it strikes down even it would it would eliminate even things like waiting periods or uh, a, a whole host of issues surrounding the act of abortion. Because they could then change if they they they're determined now to to, to keep working on um, their margin in the Senate so that they can overturn the filibuster. We've got a vote. We've got a margin of one <laughs> um, in terms of saving the filibuster. If they overturn it, they pass it in the Senate, the House, the President signs it. We we're back at square one, having to having to build back. So the midterms are hugely important, and um, that ability to run statewide campaigns um, in battleground states, targeting the handful of voters and the handful of states that will make all the difference, is how we built the pro-life Senate, a presidency, (laughs) 
that could get the Supreme Court justices that we need, that could listen to the case. It's all connected. So there's no, there can be, there must be vigilance uh, and a ramping up of, of energy and excitement for the future because that's really where we are. We're at the point of the harvest. I take it you've gotten to know Senator Manchin pretty well. Yes, I have. Uh, tell us about him. He is a complicated guy. Everybody who thinks they've worked it out gets surprised, you know. What he is is he is a man of West Virginia. He knows how far he can go and how not. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that he's, <clears throat> that he has a perfect, uh, finger on the pulse of what, uh, of what they, uh, of what they expect in West Virginia, but kind of near perfect. He'll, he'll always have enemies there, but it goes up just to a certain point. He knows that the filibuster for his integrity to be, uh, manifested, if he has it, which I believe he does, um, that he must, that he must stand by that commitment to not overturn the filibuster. I think that he is truly, I thought, let me just say this, I thought, given what I've known about him, met with him several times, and each meeting has been very long conversations about his pro-life convictions, where they come from, his Florence Christian home, or his family's projects, um, which is maternity homes for unwed mothers back, way back when. But, but then, just the other day, he communicated his great disappointment at the overturn of Roe versus Wade. So in the end, yeah, I think I know him, but that said to me, I don't understand you at all. <laughs> like, how could what, that wait, did he mean? give his reasons for saying that? No. Well, no, he didn't. And, and so I, it said to me, and he is a very smart person. It cannot be because he doesn't understand the effects. He doesn't. And so, I say, you know, the one thing that we need to have him do is follow through on the um, maintaining the filibuster. We need him for that. Um, we've been praising him for standing by it, and we still need him. If they get a, a wider Senate margin uh, after this election, though, um, he he can't hold that back. It'd be, it'd be too difficult. So that's why the Senate is so important. And we we definitely have to have we got to have one chamber. Um, otherwise, it's Armageddon. What the the predictions, even from the left, uh, and of course there may be a reason why they're they're saying this, look pretty positive for the pro life cause. Is that right? I think so. I think that you know, in the last week, there's been a lot of hand wringing. I'll just say on the part of Republicans, a lot of uh, foaming at the mouth and uh, on the on the Democrat side, saying this will be the issue that determines the election. Um, but then, uh, you know, in a week, a lot, even in a week, maybe because we're in an ADD world, a lot changes. There was, you know, the, um, the, uh, the idea that there would be backlash, uh, because we won so big, potentially, because of what states could do now, um, is, um, is now I can't think defied by some of the polls. There's a poll that came out today, a Harvard, um, Harris poll that said that while pe- people just don't understand Roe and so they don't don't understand Dobbs, they think it just means, quote, legal abortion. But they, what they don't know is it's all abortion. So so the what the polls showed is that 72% of the people think that it should be at least limited at 15 weeks. And only 10% of the people thought that there should be no limit up until the end. Well, you know, That's, Marjorie, I mean, that, that fits my experience of talking to people about it what about what about you you've talked to so many people about it yeah i mean that you mean that um the, that the it's only 10 percent the 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 10 percent only 10 percent of the people think that there should be abortion up until the very end marjorie this brings up a, a question that i often have and other people have and that is there is so much media support and attention for the most radical and most, you know, vicious of pro-abortion supporters. Uh, that simply doesn't represent the American people, does it? No, it doesn't. And if you watch any TV uh, or listen to any radio in the last week, you've heard that over and over. And the way they get away with it is they just say legal abortion. 
and and what is not heard in the mind of any of, of viewers um, is what they're saying is abortion up until the very end. And then if you do point that out, which of course I try to when I do when they bring, is um, is they just they just discount the idea that there are ever any late term abortions, which is a complete lie. There there are ten thousand in the last trimester per year. So they, and they and they say the reasons they're are extreme and horrific, and that's also not true. They're for the same reasons. This is documented well. They're for the same reasons, um, almost completely, that uh, you ha- women have abortions in the first trimester. So it is so unrepresentative, but it's also diabolical because it's not communicated in a straightforward fashion, and it is why people don't understand what Roe was. It's why people don't understand the implication of Dobbs. And they can understand it on Fox better than they can understand it on all the other networks. <laughs> but it is simply, it, it is, it is um, malpractice on the part of the media to not actually communicate what it really is. What, what do you think of Fox's coverage of the overturning of Roe? Do you think it was fair? I think it was. I mean, it depends on your show, Tucker. Of course, Tucker, I know right? Shannon Bream, for example, is on. She's our wonderful. Side. Yeah, I think in general, Fox ignores the issue, tries very hard not to report it. It's not something that they followed in general. Not an emphasis at all, given the airtime that's on pretty much every other issue that is in the conservative movement. It gets close to nothing. I don't know if it's because of ratings. I don't know if it's because of bias there. But I do know the reporters that are really good. I mean, Dana Perino is completely with us. Shannon Breen, same. And Tucker, definitely. Um, you know, they're they're fantastic. But there is a difficulty in getting the programming. I know that's true. Well, but it's really our only major media site, at least on television, that gives us any support at all. Yeah. Oh yeah, and when they communicate it, it's it's doing it's fantastic. And their print, which is really gone gangbusters, their their online um, not print but online uh, op eds are fantastic. I, I I'm just without question they have communicated what it actually is when they report it, and they've done a de- they've done a very good job in these last couple of weeks. I think maybe it's a turning point where they realize they have to cover it. You hear it, from me some frustration over the years of oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. In the desert. <laughs> We're out here in the desert. Can you please give us a cup of water? Just talk about this for you know once a month even. So, but there, but we have turned a corner, thank God, and they're a major part of making sure that they're and and um, the, the information gets out there. And their ratings are so much higher than every other show that it does um, result in a sort of a wash sometimes. Well, it was very nice to see that your bishop, the Bishop of Arlington, came out strongly in support of this overturning of Roe. Well, I should hope so, yes. And he is a wonderful bishop. He is fantastic. Um, and so, what, there have been some courageous bishops out there, Gomez and Carleon, nobody, nobody any better than those two archbishops. And that I, I'm hoping that... Um, and I think you have the finger, your finger on the pulse of it better than anybody I know, including me, <laughs> about where that is headed. And, and will the church, where this is a heart, this lives, this issue lives at the heart of the church, it has from the beginning. So there have been seasons where we haven't received what we've needed. I'd like to hear what you think. I'm going to well, I, you in this season, the Catholic, the, Catholic church? Church is, the Catholic Church has given up on the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. It has no impact at all, except... The impact it has is through individual people like you. I mean, individual Catholics. I mean, the whole yeah. grassroots pro-life movement began in the early 70s with an, or- with an organizational call from the Bishop's Conference. And it was established, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the first pro-life group. But then it was put in the hands of lay people, and it no longer was an arm of the Bishop Conference. And now, I mean, I wrote an article a year or so ago that said, you know, why has the Catholic Church, you know, given up on on the abortion issue? And it's very clear that, with the exception of, there's some great bishops, I mean, mean, there's, Mm -hmm. call it five to ten, who are very strong on the pro-life issue, very strong. Mm -hmm. 
But the rest simply put it in the background and use platitudes and nods of the head and winks to, uh, you know, deal with their pro-life constituency. Yeah, I mean, now, now we need them desperately. And, you know, now there's more to talk about. You can talk about serving the needs of women. They're clearly more comfortable doing that, and it has to be done. So at a a minimum, that, all the pregnancy centers that benefit, also just from the, I mean, you you and I talk about this um, all the time, some words, some concrete guidance from the pulpit, um, not just alluding to an op-ed that may be out of the back, you know, or or not mentioning anything at all, or saying, which I've heard so many times, I just want to scream, oh, I, it's embedded in in, um, in my homily. Aren't you, didn't you hear that? <laughs> every, the truth is embedded in every homily, not in every issue. I guess you could filter down and find every issue is embedded, perhaps, in every homily. What we need are concrete words, true leadership at a moment the country is crying out for it, and a way to bring people to the church that would not have paid attention before. It's such an opportunity, and I pray that we won't miss it. Yes, and, you know, if the church wants to grow and to strengthen, it's got to remain true and committed to its core principles, beginning with the sacredness of human life. I'm talking with Marjorie Dannenfelter, president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life American. We'll be right back. With Marjorie Dannenfelter, president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America organization that has such a huge impact over the years in actual elections, electing pro-lifers, defeating pro-abortion, especially those who don't keep their pro-life promises. And Marjorie, I think you insinuated early, let, let me ask again, that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is only going to have a marginal impact on the upcoming midterm election? Well, I think, um, everybody says it remains to be seen, and of course it remains to be seen. I think that it, it is up to us and our candidates how we communicate. I think that it very likely could have a, uh, an important marginal advantage, the way it has in every election up until now. I think our base is fired up, not I think, it is more fired up than it ever has been because we've gone from the realm of the theoretical. Like, you know, I'm pro-life, that's fantastic. Of course, you can't do anything about it, but we love you, you're pro-life. Keep moving in the right direction, too. I'm pro-life, I can actually concretely do something, especially if you're a governor. I can pass a law in our state that stops abortion completely. So that's motivation. That is the winning edge. You know, it's the battleground states, places Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, where the contrast between our our candidates and theirs has to be the contrast between consensus built. Like now, democracy wheels may turn. We will build consensus, and our and this is what I think it is in our state, or this is what I think it should be in the country. Versus the other guy who has the ten percent position that is every abortion up into the end. So if, the, if we get that contrast coming out of the mouths of our candidates and, and our party, which I think it's possible that we can do. It will be of great advantage to our battleground races in the House and the Senate. Um, Marjorie, let me it ask. It could also be a wash. Let me ask you this question: Since this is Roe, the overturning of Roe has thrown this back to the states. I guess you have a. If, if I'm sure you've got presence in state legislatures and uh, so forth. I guess you have to redouble your efforts at the state level now. Indeed. And it's been, we've undergone a, a massive um, uh, reorganization at SBA. It's been, um, and not all at once, it's gradual, but we hired all of our state legislative uh, leaders in, in the different regions in the country. We've mapped out, and you should check, it's a really interesting, if you look on our website, there's a map that is updated daily that gives the status of every single state where it's been. So the our legislative teams that are um, working with me, with governors and legislatures across the country, of course, are now. I mean, when you say this is the harvest, this is truly this is truly the moment where 
you really save lives. So 11 states have already passed laws that either completely or almost completely um, uh, stop abortion in their states. So, uh, yeah, it, it is a reorganization um, in, in that regard for us. Now, we always will have to maintain our federal role or it all go to or it all goes south. Right. We'll always do that. But we replicate the same model in the states, um, and it's one that that uh, that is unfortunately rare, but we, we try to encourage, which is you, you put your political support behind a person who's supposed to be leading the bill. And then when you've done that, you can go back and say, okay, remember how you're going to do that? We're going to do that now, instead of waiting to find out who is elected and then go and try to lobby him. So I want to I want to give our listeners your website because you just mentioned all this great information that's there. It is sbaprolife.org. Sbaprolife one word dot org. I just was there and uh, I hadn't been there for a while, Marjorie, and it just looks fabulous. Uh, well, thank you. I think that map to me has become my day to day briefing because it's updated from all parts of our organization and it you know if there's a hold up in the state uh in terms of the piece of legislation that's going to pass a 15-week limit a heartbeat bill a complete limit um you'll see it on that map to me that's kind of my my go-to because it's hard to keep up with an entire nation <laughs> well i mean how how big has your staff become well, we've got, I think we have probably close to 60 in, um, right outside of DC. I know you know, but people might not know. We're right, right outside of DC in Arlington. But we have field teams all over the country that are, uh, that's, that are basically are about five to eight hundred. It will reach eight hundred by the, by election day. So, a lot, so we have, and we have a lot of remote people. I guess I would say it's, probably a hundred when you consider the people who just here all the time or who work remote. Well, I might just throw in here that uh, what you've heard should justify any contribution, financial or otherwise, that you want to make to SBA Pro-Life America. And that's for me. Thank you, Gil. Well, Thank I you. mean, I say this. you got to always Thank watch the bottom line, right? <laughs> yes. At every point of our growth, from the beginning when I was here, I never, I've always wanted us to be, and we will always maintain this as a dynamic fundamental principle, and is that we can, we have to, we want to put our money into program and keep our team as small as possible so that we can move very quickly from thing to thing. So being a pirate ship, not a barge, is um, how we're made, and that's how you have to be in politics um, if you want to win, and you want to win legislation as well, so... Uh, we're, we are, um, I'm, I'm pretty cheap when it comes to, uh, or frugal, put it that way, and, uh, wanting the money to be actually in the program and in the state. So, we're standing right now at 30 pro-life women in the House of Representatives. What do you think the number will be? You don't, I know you can't, I'm not asking you to be act, yeah. a total prognosticator, but, are you looking to up that number? Yeah, there is a great news table. It grows every year. And I say it like I'm surprised. I'm not surprised. But I'm just I'm I'm just always gratified to see that there are people women considering themselves candidates. It was a tough road to hoe thirty years ago. Very tough. Because especially conservative Catholic pro life women um, didn't necessarily see themselves um even in a, even in later seasons in life, as candidates, now they do. Many do. It's a calling, definitely a calling. But if you are called, and when these women have been called, they're the best. Some of the best communicators for life they exist in the world, not just in our country, and not just in the Congress, in the world. And one of the most beautiful things I've seen is the proliferation of those callings um, in in the states. We have a, a national pro-life women's caucus. That includes state women legislators all across the country, and they are leading pro-life bills. And it is never because men shouldn't have a voice. They must have a voice, a, a beautiful and complimentary voice to women. But very often women, um, especially in some tender debates, can be the best to communicate 
what it means for mother and child to be have that cord severed uh, between between them, what it does to both death for one and misery for another. Women are good at communicating that in a personal way. Now, you talked about the importance of holding the Senate. Uh, where do you think we're going there in terms of the support for pro-life uh, after the 2022 midterm election? I think that um, the Senate is close. It's harder than the House, but I think momentum is very much on our side. I think life will help if it's done well. We have nine battleground states where we're engaged going door-to-door and and all the other forms of communication, too, to explain what's at stake to voters who are the ones who will decide the election, not the givens on both ends. And so um, I think that, you know, we're doing every single thing we can to make sure that that happens. We can't, what we don't want um, is to have, a, again, a democratically controlled Senate that's confirming these bad judges that open up during the uh, Biden administration. Uh, the reason that we're at where we are is that we have judges that were confirmed by a, um, they were nominated by a pro-life president and then um, several pro-life presidents and then confirmed by a pro-life Senate. So there's so many reasons the Senate is so important. And the House, of course, is we're, we and with our allies involved with, uh, with uh, House battlegrounds all over the country, I think that is going beautifully. So um, I don't know what the margins will be. I would predict that we take those back. I don't usually do that, but I'm, I am I do predict that we will. And we're going to take both back? Yeah. Whoa. From yeah, I'm just saying to... in here. We'll, we can come back and talk about it later. <laughs> it's, it's just because <laughs> it's what I see on the ground. It's what I'm seeing. The, the predicted backlash about Roe, uh, which is not, I don't, I don't see, um, I don't see sitting. Um, and, um, and um, the environment in general. I mean, they decide. The other side decided they can't win on anything. They can't win on, given the foreign policy situation, uh, inflation, gas, you name it. They're they they're losing on all these fronts. They decided, okay, well, let's pin everything on abortion, and that is such an overreach on their part, given these battlegrounds. That I think it's going to be. Uh, they're going to wish that they had done something different. The uh, what particular uh, what particular uh, races are you keeping track of very closely? So um, there's the Senate battlegrounds where we're engaged are uh, Florida, so that's Rubio, um, North Carolina. Oh, it's an open seat. Ted Budd is the pro-life guy. Arizona, um, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Nevada. And New Hampshire, I may have missed one. Many of these, so those are Senate battles. There are also House battles in most of these states. Um, and then, and then, central and vital is that we're helping governors in uh, in a lot of these states. So that would include Michigan as well, uh, because of course, what what governors can do now, no one can do. Nobody in the federal government can do, and that is to uh, sign a sign a law to pass, you know stop abortion stout tens of thousands in their own state with a, with with one signing of a bill um, so so those are those are the battlegrounds where we are and um, it's a massive project and it's a beautiful project the people these people who go door to door differ from any other issue that you've ever seen and it's because they they are first ardent pro-lifers and the and and second, they're willing to do this work, which is kind of tough, especially in this environment where people are all hyped up and violent even. Um, and so they need your prayers. I, I really, every opportunity I get, I ask for prayers to support those conversations that are political, yes, but they're also tender. And there are a lot of people who've had abortions who answer those doors that are, that are leaning our way because of the pain they experience, and some of them have, many of them have not healed. So um, those prayers will be very much appreciated. What kind of, all these years you've been doing this, what kind of toll has it taken on you? Well, you're my friend, so you know a lot of that answer. Um, 
<laughs> I, <laughs> it should be more widely known, Marjorie. <laughs> well, I, there are definitely costs, but I got to tell you, and I'm not, I'm not uh, sugarcoating it. The joy of being able to pursue my personal calling um, and have that be uh, at the center of my life with my husband, who that's how we even met um, through the pro-life movement, has been the has been the joy of a lifetime. It is, it's hard for our family, I'll admit, and I don't want to talk about the details of that because they hate that. But it has been. Um, it you know the, the the spiritual warfare is real. It's so obvious. Uh, and um, I've seen this in many families. It just is, uh, you know, right now, even at Susan B. Anthony List, especially right now, there are just so many difficult situations going on in families more than ever before, and it is the enemy's desire to divide. He always divides. And um, But uh, there's only one way to, there's only one way through it, and that is to see where we, see the benefit that we have. I think of, you know, all the people that, Think of all the people that you've known who have been champions for their causes, and uh, you yourself. You know how difficult it can be. But uh, oh yeah, I mean everyone becomes a everyone becomes a target. Yeah, everyone's a target. It's the long game, though. It's eye on the prize. And and there, I I mean, can you imagine? Because you're you're you should be holding this in your heart as well, Deal, because you've been so central to this pro-life fight for so long. Anything a greater privilege than having opened the door to uh, to souls coming into the world that are needed here? It would, it would have been shredded limb from limb <laughs> if there had not been uh, all this work that is now coming into fruition. It's impossible to get one's mind around, but it, but I can but I but I feel pretty sure that uh, if we get there, that in heaven it'll be very clear. And let's all pray that this legislative attempt to establish Roe v. Wade uh, as a law will fail. Yeah, that's the big danger. It really is, and it's easy to not. And it's easy not miss. It's easy to miss it because it's definitely not reported in the media. Um, and when it is reported, it's basically not communicated what it really is. It's communicated as restoring women's rights to abortion. And when most people hear this, I know this because I read all the polls and I have for 30 years, people hear restore women's right to abortion, they almost always think first trimester, which, of course, we abhor. But that's not what they're talking about when they say restore women's rights. They're uh, that, you know, uh, odd way of putting it. Um, they're, they're talking about abortion up until the end. And they are so dedicated to the institution of abortion that they don't care if it hurts women. It doesn't matter to them an iota. Even up until the end when it's, when it's tremendously dangerous for a woman to undergo, it just doesn't matter to them because the institution blinds them to the needs of women, which of course is a complete anathema to the women in history who got us involved in politics in the first place. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Victoria Woodhull, uh, Alice Paul, all, Elizabeth Blackwell, <laughs> Charlotte Lozier, all of them, they were all knew, they all knew that abortion was the exploitation of women by men who would drive them to the deed, um, and, uh, and that they are, and the ones who drove them for the, to that deed were the ones that, um, that were deeply, deeply guilty. And, uh, so we're at a different place in the feminist movement, I think, as well. I think this is a moment of division of that movement uh, in the same way they were divided in the late 60s where they dumped all the pro-life people out of it. Uh, now now perhaps people will be finding their way in to authentic fem- feminism again. We'll see. Well, I do want to... I want to ask you a question that's, that continues to puzzle me. And that is the level of hate, anger violence and destructiveness and rejection of our nation, rejection of America, rejection of the founding documents, uh, all for uh, overthrowing a, a Supreme Court decision that does not eliminate abortion. It simply allows the states to regulate it. How do you, Where is all this coming from, Marjorie? 
So anger has been there for years, as you well know, and it's the you know it's the complete atomization of of society that my right is all that matters. What I perceive as my right, my will is all that matters, and so much they did hang so a minority of women, but uh, but women especially did hang their future, their rights. They believed that they had to have abortion in order to be free. They embraced the lie. They lived it. They taught it to others. And they created a, a, a movement within within that doesn't represent women, and it numerically doesn't even represent women, but that's where they are. So their anger is wrongfully based on the fact that uh, they cannot define their future. They cannot control their lives because there is no abortion. Uh, and, and, and you and I and the Supreme Court, Donald Trump, uh, Ronald Reagan even, and Bush, they're all at fault. All you people are at fault, and you live to take away our rights. It's such an obscure and alienated version uh, and vision of of the world um, that uh, that it, it's easy to unpack if you just sort of point out what is obvious to us that there are two lives in every one of these situations, and we have to serve them both. But there's a blindness to that, and um, and that blindness is the same blindness that that has narrowed the worldview so much that they that it's a shrinking pie of rights. The only and it shrinks so much. It's only it's only my right and my and my ability to define myself regardless of anybody else's. And I'll try to build my my rights and break everybody else's down, but that's my job. That's who I am. Go girl, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that view is uh, is just so rampant. No acknowledgement deal. I mean, you're the philosopher. No acknowledgement that there is a unity of truth and that by going against it undermines others and our own rights every single time. The, uh, but the sheer audacity that you and others have shown going back 20 some odd years or more that over that Roe versus Wade could be overthrown, that this this was something that could be done in the face of all kinds of laughter and all oh, sure you can and it's you know this unsettled law. When you look back, do you realize how audacious you were? <laughs> you know what I really think is that I, I did feel like I knew the next step, and that's all you're really required to know. You can have a vision, you can be excited about that vision, not even completely understanding when it will come, if it will come, or what the final ingredients are, but you do know the next step. And that's been pretty obvious, not just because of how we do this together, like at at my organization, also you, very obvious, okay, the building blocks were very difficult to achieve, but we finally did build the something I think beautiful for God, it ended up in this way. And what I mean, the building blocks, they're so concrete. They are, uh, we have to create an environment where, where we elect a stronger pro-life Senate than we've ever had. We've got to have a president who has got who makes his pro-life commitment to Supreme Court justices real. He can't hedge. And then you've got to have enough Supreme Court justices so you see God's hand in this because so many things you couldn't control. You have to have enough to have a, a view of the Constitution that would lead to an overturn of every way. And you got to have a case. <laughs> so, you know, you know I, think, I think... but I, You know, another sense. thing that's been accomplished, and we should say it out loud, and that is, in, our, in, in the visible future, no one will be nominated by the Republican Party for president who is not pro-life. Yeah, and strongly pro-life. And just and remember back cannot, to Romney. Yeah. Oh yeah, I do very well. And remember that he was—we knew he was weak, and he proved how weak he was, especially the way he treated you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, commitments were not commitments, and he—he was a disastrous performance in debating and in communicating, hiding. I mean, I think that Republican candidates, you know. Imperfect as they are, know the ingredients for failure, <laughs> and they know they know that those ingredients apply to this issue as well. 
And that means you cannot, you cannot hide. You will be labeled. You cannot get in the fetal position and pretend like this thing is not happening because it is. And you will be defined out of the race. You will be, you will be in a, a, a horrible, painted as a horrible misogynist or a, a or a, a silly idiot if you're a woman if you hold this position and you say nothing about it. You have to define the other side. You have to go on offense. Explain well. Be a great, be a, articulate as a communicator as you can and the only way you can do that is focus on it know where you're headed and if you know where you're headed you can uh you can plot all the points along the way well back when i was working at the rnc on catholic outreach i was always being and this was of course you know back in what two two thousand so forth i was always being reminded that we catholics we pro-lifers were sort of allowed to be there, that we were sort of, <laughs> you know, sort of part of the team and blah, blah, blah. You're so cute. And, well, you know, and the, and the Republican Party itself wasn't embracing us then. Oh. Now they have to, Marjorie, and you've helped make that happen. Well, I, I, there's nothing like, uh, there's nothing like painful failure, and then there's also nothing like success. Having seen this last president succeed and make abortion a central promise that he followed up on um, was really important to see. And Senate races the same. And I want to give kudos to the current RNC chair, uh, Ronna McDaniel, who I think is fantastic. On this issue, better than ever before, she's a great communicator. She is not afraid. You do not mess with her <laughs> on this. She's just great. And I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know she was going to be like that. But now this moment, uh, and before now, but certainly this moment has gotten her up, you know, fighting like a bear in all the best and most mother bear ways. I want to I want to tell one story as a way of saying goodbye to you for now, Marjorie. C.S. Lewis asked the question in one of his books that if your dog bit a neighbor's child, would you rather face a mother or the father? <laughs> And obviously you want to face the father, not the mother, oh, because yeah. you women know how to make war. You know you know how to, how to take the hill. So Marjorie Danafelter, thank you so much for being on Church and Culture. And it won't be so long in the future that you're back, I hope. Oh, I hope so, too. What a privilege. And I love you, and I love your show. Love you, too. And all of you listening, we'll be back in a moment with another Excellent guest.